0: I'd like to read a verse to start us off this morning. I'll be jumping around here, <clears throat> but I wanted to read just this verse from Hebrews 12. In verse 14, it says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. I don't know if you how many have been watching the Olympics? Probably quite a few of us, huh? <clears throat> how many saw the uh, how many saw the Russia-U.S. hockey ending? Quite a few. That's quite a reminiscent of 1980 Miracle on Ice. Somebody saw that movie, Miracle on Ice. Uh, an amazing story. I know for those of you who haven't seen it, back in the 1980s, Russia was um, you know they had paid professional athletes and they were a powerhouse. Don, you know, Russia was. Considered the dominant force in the hockey world, and the U.S. came that year with with just a really a bunch of off the street hockey scrubs. College people came; they tried out, and Herb Brooks, uh, NCAA coach, was the coach of that team. And uh, after getting pulverized six to nothing earlier by the Russians, they came in that year to the Olympics, and. That game was coined "Miracle on Ice" as they won that game. There are there are a number of, of very interesting analogies and, and lessons that took place in that story, and if you saw the movie, you you saw a number of those. There was one that was uh, very interesting, and I, I want to just share that with you this morning. It was a it was basically the story of uh, the selection process that took place in that, for that team that became a part of that Olympic hockey team. And if, if you remember in the story, the selection guys came and they tried out and her Brooks, Brooks began to eliminate certain players and his assistant coaches were aghast that he was eliminating some of the most talented players on the team. And Herb Brooks, however, was doing something very interesting. He was not looking for talent. Obviously, you had to have a certain level of talent, but more important, he was looking for heart. He was looking for a certain kind of player. He wasn't looking for necessarily the most talented players on the team. And so, on the basis of that, he he made his selections, and I'm sure there were some players that didn't, after seeing everyone, thought they wouldn't make it, and they did. And we see that they were chosen to play up to the honor of being on the U.S. Olympic team. Now, there's an analogy here in that story. And I want to use this to, to, to kind of introduce a couple of major themes when it comes to holiness uh, in the scripture. And so, as you look at that story, we see that there were, there were two things going on, that people found themselves on that team, skaters found themselves on that team, not necessarily based on their performance, but based on something that, that the coach had seen in them, and, and he had s- simply decided to, to give them the honor of playing on that team at the same time I can assure you that besides the honor being chosen on that team was the expectation was the expectation that those players that were chosen would would play up to the potential would, would understand the privilege that it was to be on that Olympic hockey team and out of that privilege that they would play they would leave their hearts on the ice and that's literally what happened in that miracle that took place on ice. The Bible talks about two kinds of holiness. Two kinds of holiness. And so there's this one kind of holiness that has very little to do... You probably weren't the best skater on the team. You are probably not the most talented. But God chose you, and, and, and he, he chose to place you on that team and, and to have the honor of being called his people. And, and that's one kind of, of holiness that the Bible talks about. We would, we would call that a positional holiness, that you were chosen to be in a position of being on this team, not because you're the most talented, but because the coach chose you to be on that team. Positional holiness there's, there's a, a number of passages now I just want to quickly read through here listen to these listen to these verses. this is from Romans three you'll see it up on the wall as well verses twenty one and twenty two but now and when we see the word righteousness, that means being in a place of rightness before God it's, it's very synonymous with with holiness okay and so we can, we can really use that. I think it's fair here to use that interchangeably. But now there is a righteousness or a holiness from God apart from the law. In other words, apart from our performance that has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. There is, there is no difference. So here we see this, this righteousness is, is given to us. We turn over to 1 Corinthians and the first chapter, listen to what we read there. It is because of him that that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. So Jesus Christ has become your holiness. It's not something you do. It's something that he gave to you. And then in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, and I would like to read just a couple of verses there. Hebrews 10, look at verse 10 and then at verse 14. And by that will we have been made holy. Somebody has made us holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all verse 14. Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. In other words, interesting, by that sacrifice he has made holy those who are being made holy. And so in in that verse you really see both of these concepts of holiness in the Bible. So we have this one kind of major holiness. It's, It's so critical that we continually talk about the fact that you can never be holy enough for God, and that God is offering you His holiness, His righteousness through Christ. I think we do a fairly good job here of talking about that. Do we not? I mean, you hear that at some point. Hopefully every Sunday you will hear this is not based on your work, it's based on Christ. We are constantly wanting to understand this concept of holiness. However, there, there's a there's a second kind of holiness that we need to be clear on, and I think to some extent, perhaps, perhaps maybe we neglect and have neglected this kind of holiness. Certainly in the church at large we have done so. This is this is a if you don't understand that not only are you made holy through christ but we are to be striving to be holy you know, that's like that's like receiving this honor that you've been invited to play on the olympic team and then saying well now that i'm on the team i guess i can relax now that i'm on the team i don't need to I, I you know obviously i was selected so i i the work is over no the work is just beginning is it not I mean, now it's, time to, now it's time to live up to being an Olympian. Now, now it's time to, be, to practice and work and discipline. And the members of that team were chosen because of their heart to do that. This takes a lot of effort. And if we don't put forth that effort, pretty soon we start to feel not so happy about our lives and about our performance, because here we are. we've We've been called to play on the Olympic team, and we're not playing up to our ability because we're not practicing, because we're not putting forth the effort, because we're not diligent. This is called functional holiness. So listen to some of these verses that describe this kind of holiness. 1 Peter 1. Fourteen. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's something, you need to be holy. I need to be holy. 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Second Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So, Here's a, we are called to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. One more, Hebrews 12, 14. As we read this morning, strive for peace with everyone and strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so we have this, this is what we call functional holiness. This is, this is becoming like holiness who you are. You've been chosen to be on the Olympic team. Now become an Olympian. Play like it. Put forth the effort that such a position of honor requires. So let's summarize it. Positional holiness. Positional holiness, which is by faith without effort. Positional holiness, by faith, has nothing to do with your effort. And then functional holiness, it's by his grace and through your effort and my effort that functional grace is lived out. So if all we focus on is positional holiness, the fact that, you know what? God did it all. There's nothing we have to do. It's simply by His grace. And we end up with something called licentiousness. Licentiousness is basically this. It's a life free of the rules, thus with no need to live holy. There's no need to live holy if it's all by God's grace. And if we simply live by functional holiness, apart from the grace of God... Then what we end up with is a life full of rules with no power to live out a holy life. So in on the one sense, you have no need to live a holy life. On the other, you know what it is, but you have no power to do it because we're cut off from the grace of God, which would enable us to live that life out. And so over the course of this year, between now and Easter and then uh, during the summer, we are going to be talking about functional holiness. Now, now, we're not setting aside the holiness which comes only from God through His grace, but we're talking about the fact that we are on the team, now how do we play? What does that look like? In each of our lives. Last week, I, I started a thought that I, I want to complete this morning. And uh, my goal, my goal last week was to talk about the culture in which you and I live. We live in this culture and something's happening in our culture. I mean, aren't we aware of this? That we are headed in a direction that is not good. And we simply, we know that because of the symptoms. We know that because of You know, we know that because of divorce rate, brokenness. We know that because of depression. We know that because of suicide. We know that because of crime. All of the indicators are there to tell us that evidently the directions we're going. You know, even putting aside the fact that they're in direct opposition to the Scripture. I mean, put that aside. You don't buy the Scriptures. Begin to look at the symptomology that's going on in our culture. and, And we are moving in not a good direction. We are moving away from holiness and we sense that and within us, there's this, there's this feeling of helplessness like, how do we stop this? Because I'm an American, you're an American, we're a part of this country. What happens out there affects us here. And so we, many people, they have this feeling like, it, what can we do? How, how, how do we deal with this situation? And so I began last Sunday just describing biblically what's going on. I want to complete that thought and then add one thing to it here this morning. Last Sunday I brought up this point that when a culture loses sight of the holiness of God, it, it begins down a very, very bad path. And that's the path America is on. We have lost the vision of God and His holiness. And by that, when I say God's holiness, I mean the character of who God is in in all of His qualities and, and who He really is. When we lose sight of this God who created us and who created us for a certain purpose, when we lose sight of that, lose sight of the holiness of God, we begin to experience what we see all around us. So Romans One tells us exactly how it goes. Man sees the holiness of God day to day. It pours forth speech, night to night it reveals knowledge. There's not a language in all the earth where it's not heard. Just look at the sun, the moon, and the stars, and you can see his power and his divine nature. But man doesn't want to see that. Because if there is a God that powerful and that divine, then he must have some kind of say and authority in my life. And it says that man suppresses who God is because they want to do their own stuff. They suppress it because of their own wickedness, because of our own desire to live out our own lives in our own way. You need not get very far into the Bible to see that happen where Satan comes to Eve and says, Eve, you need to do your own thing because God is just putting his thumb on your life he, he's, he's withholding from you and so people feel like you know to, to follow God is to inhibit their life and so they want to do their own thing and so man begins to suppress the truth about God's character and his holiness and his right to rule and reign in our lives and so God responds to that by saying okay go ahead you want to do your own thing? do your own thing. And so that's what we're doing in this culture. We're doing our own thing. And we're reaping the consequences of doing our own thing. The culture becomes unholy. And, and you know sometimes we ask ourselves we say, well, you know, when is God going to when is God going to judge America? Well, God is judging America. The fact that he's allowing us to do our own thing is, the Bible says that God's wrath is being poured out by turning us over to ourselves. And when that happens, we experience the pain of unholy living. We reap that kind of pain in our lives. And so, Last week I shared about how, how that is, has brought us as a culture to being a culture that is, if we're going to cry out to God, it, it's crying out for him to, to ease the pain of what's going on in our world and internally in our lives. And so not only does the culture, but the church thus becomes very therapeutic. By that, by that what I mean is, is that, you know, basically all we can see all we can see is that is 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 how deeply we are hurting as a result of how we are living I also talked about the fact that the church and just to back up the church then becomes a Christianity without atonement because if sin isn't all that serious right if sin isn't all that serious then the need for an atonement isn't all that serious. And so the gospel begins to take the back seat in our churches, and in some cases, it's kicked out of the car. And now God is love, and he'll get us all where he wants to someday, no matter how, it doesn't matter what way. There's not this gravity of the impact of sin and the realization that we need a, only the perfect sacrifice of God himself. Could sufficiently deal with our sin. That that no longer becomes what we are preaching or teaching in the church at large, and we become a Christianity without a need for atonement. We also become, as I mentioned, a church that's very, very therapeutic. And so we come to God with our pain and our situations and our discomforts, and we say, God, you need to fix this, and God, you need to fix it now. If God can't get us into His schedule this week, then we'll go see somebody else. That's kind of isn't that how we kind of we're not a very patient people. And so, in the time I have left here, I want to I want to talk about I don't want to just talk about the problem because that is our culture. That's the culture in which we live. And, and let's face it, for many of us in our lives, you know our the the trials that we have in our lives i'll say this about myself probably for most of us a lot of the trials are just self-induced you know we get we get we experience a lot of pain because we just live contrary to to god's design that's called unholy living god has a holistic way to live and we live unholy and so we reap those consequences you know we reap it in our health we reap it in our emotions we we Reap it in our finances, and so we have a lot of pain in our lives because of our unholy living. So back to the question: You know, what do you do in a culture when you see everything moving this way? I mean, how how do you change that? Politically, it doesn't work. Uh, it seems like, I mean, it seems like there's almost no solution. And so I want to share this morning with you the, what has to happen, what will have to happen in this culture for anything to change. If this does not happen, I, I promise you the culture will not change. The culture will continue to, to slide and deteriorate. And so here it is. What we need is, and, and we go back to what was lost in the beginning, we need a clear vision of who God is. We need to see God for who He is. We need to pray for this suppression of the truth about God, that it would be lifted. And we don't, need to, we don't need to just pray that for the culture. We need to pray that for us. I need to pray that for me. I, I'm going to invite you, and as we go through this process over the summer, there are certain things I'm going to invite you to begin to focus on and pray about. So here's the first one. I want to invite you to begin to pray that you would see God in all of His holiness begin to pray that you would pray for the revelation. Here, I'll put it up in this terms. You'll see it up on the wall. Pray for the revelation of the true character and holiness of God. And pray for the full revelation of that. Not just a God who is love and mercy and grace and your best friend. But Pray for a God who is also a God of wrath and anger and justice and who who has to call every sin into account. But don't you see a God who's full of wrath and anger and justice and miss the fact that God is love and mercy and a shepherd and someone that wants to be your friend. Full, Full revelation of who God is. Not one or the other, but both. That is what makes God so amazing. What makes God so amazing is that His wrath is so great against the single most smallest sin, and at the same time, God has come to forgive even the smallest sin. I mean, it's this contrast of of the greatness of God, and yet the intimacy of God. It's that which makes God so amazing. Pray for full revelation of who God is. That he's not just a father and a friend, but he is is the king and he is the judge. And he's not just an oppressive judge and king, but he's also your father who would withhold no good gift from his child. And as Jesus said, I call you my friends. So this magnificent king and judge, and yet he's your friend. I mean, this is something incredibly great, and yet he calls you his friends. Full revelation of, of who God is. That God is not just Father, that he's not just the Son, that, that he's not just the Holy Spirit, but God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God the Father has this amazing plan he's working out in history and the universe. It just the manifold wisdom of of God as your father and then that God also as son so deeply loves you right now at this moment he's interceding on your behalf what's going on in your life he is interceding before you with with the father and the Holy Spirit the amazing truth that this God with this amazing plan this God that loved us so much on the cross that he's actually indwelling within you walking with you every day, guiding you, empowering you, seeing you through, accomplishing the salvation that God promised in your life. So pray for this full revelation of who God is. Let's not diminish God. Let's pray that that God will be expanded in our hearts and in our minds. Because this is where holiness starts. In a culture, in a church, in our lives personally the second thing that flows right out of that something that will be almost automatic we saw that last week you know what happened to everyone who saw God where did they end up they ended up on their face they ended up bowed down before this God because they saw him for who he is And so if you were to ask me, what does America need? What does does the church need? What do we need? We need a fresh vision of God and we need the repentance that flows out of that. And so apart from repentance, there is no hope for our country. I'm just... I don't know of any other solution. Man cannot pull himself up unless he's willing to repent of all of that goes along with that unless he's willing to see God and and what repentance means is repentance doesn't mean to feel bad It very well can accompany that but what it means to be repentant doesn't mean to be walking around feeling bad repentance means to change your mind that's what it means to repent means you know what? I've been living my life apart from a realization of who this creator is. I'm going to change him. I'm going to start living for him instead of for me. I'm going to start trusting him instead of me. I'm going to start responding to his word instead of the word of the culture. That's what repentance means. It means it means to change our mind. It means to quit suppressing the truth about who God is. And we began to open ourselves up to seeing God for who he really, really is. You know, I find it amazing. When in 1 John 3, it says, One day we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There is something incredibly transformational about just seeing God for who he is. And so as we pray for a revelation of who God is, our our hearts will be drawn to repentance. And this is so critical. You know, there's a verse in Romans that says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And we often focus on kindness there. We say, you know what? We don't need to beat people up with a club to get them to repent. We, we need them to simply see the kindness of God. And, and that's true. But you need to understand in Romans 1, 2, and 3, where this comes out of, what reveals the kindness of God is the fact of God's wrath against sin. It's, it's understanding in light of who God is that we should be toast, and yet the kindness of God is that He's willing to save us. But it's in the context of his wrath and his judgment against our sin. And notice where the kindness of God is supposed to lead us. The kindness of God is to lead us to repentance. It's to lead us to this place of of a changed mind and heart towards God. Well, let me bring this down here. We find that We find that holiness obviously will not happen unless the gospel touches our lives and and comes into our lives. But the gospel is not going to come into our lives unless there is a spirit of repentance in our lives. And repentance is not going to come Simply because I tell you you need to repent or change. That has no power in your life. What what changes us is when we begin to see our lives in context of who God really is. And so the, the flow is kind of like we see God for who he is, we we repent and and we become open, we realize our sin, the gravity of it, and we realize that we need. We, we need the gospel, we need the Savior in each of our lives. You know, one of the most significant guys in the Bible, his name was John the Baptist. <clears throat> Probably every one of us has heard that name, John the Baptist. And uh, notice here, in, in the Gospel of Luke, and I'd just like you to uh, listen to what it said here about him. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read verse 27 and 28. It says, This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you and who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So he's talking about John here. And he says, you know, John is the greatest one of the greatest men that was ever born. And so John comes and he's coming here to prepare the hearts of people. He's coming to prepare the hearts of people. Mark chapter 1 verse 4. <clears throat> This is why it says there, <clears throat> Mark chapter 1, verse 4. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So this guy comes and he's, he's preaching, he's baptizing people, and the significance, what, what the baptism means is that people are repenting. That's what it means. So, so what was his message that got people into that water to be baptized? Listen to what his... I'll just read it here a portion from Matthew 3, verses 7 to 12. Here's a, here's a sampling of what his message was as he went around the country. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I am not fit to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So there's hope here and there's wrath here. And so John the Baptist basically went around the countryside saying, You need to repent. If you don't repent, the wrath of God is upon your life. The wrath of God is upon your life. His preaching got him into prison and eventually took his life. There's a big push in churches today to make people feel comfortable. Valet parking, valet parking, coffee cup holders in the pews, theater-style seating, uh, one-hour services so people will keep coming back, coffee and snacks, free gifts, uh, nursery security that will make you feel secure with your kids there, uh, all to make people feel comfortable and safe. Now, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I, I think it's can obviously be taken to an extreme. But, and, and I tell people in the in membership class, I said, you know, one of the goals here is we want people, when you walk in this building, we want this to be a safe place. But what I mean by that is we want that to be, and, and I mean that in every sense of the word, this needs to be a safe place. It needs to be a place where people aren't going to talk behind your back. Uh, this needs to be a place where you can trust people. This is not a popularity contest here. It's not a fashion show here. You can come as you are here. There's not a talent display. People aren't going to... This is hopefully a place where you come and the person next to you is not thinking they're any better than you are. All those things are what I, what I talk about when I, when I mean safe. But, but when in churches... And I'm talking mainly here about pastors. We, we, start, we start taking the hard truths of Scripture and start softening them because we want people to feel comfortable and we want to make sure people come back. Like the pillow prophets who said, there's peace where there is no peace. And we begin to reason, you know, people in the culture feel guilty. They, they do. I find people outside the church feel guilty. They may act like they don't, but they do. And the reason they feel guilty is because they are just like we're guilty. The Bible says everyone's guilty. So there's this guilt out there, and it's really hard to get them to church because if you come to church, you're obviously going to feel more guilty, right? And, and they're working pretty hard to feel less guilty than they are. I mean, they're not doing everything right, but they're, most people are trying to live a decent life to deal with the guilt that's there. And so we, we think and we reason, you know, when people come in, we, we don't want them to feel more guilty or they're just going to leave, right? Right? I mean, what if we ran our hospitals that way? What if St. Clair's had a staff meeting and they said, look, when people come here, no bad news, okay? I don't care what the the tests show, just tell people they're fine. Otherwise, they're not going to keep coming back. They're going to walk into a place where you, you walk in and someone says, hey, you got cancer, you may be dying in two weeks. Nobody wants to hear that kind of news. And it's, I mean, we're not talking here, this is not a place of entertainment. We're, we're not talking about so much about physical bodies, condition. We're talking about situation, condition of the human soul. And so what I think is really unsafe is when people come into a church and, and they're in an unsafe place and we don't tell them. When we try and minimize guilt... God never intended us to minimize guilt. I mean, he gave us guilt as a gift. Guilt is like the red light on your dashboard. It's telling you something's wrong. Something's really wrong. If you don't deal with what's... If you don't open the hood and get underneath there, you may destroy your car. So, we do people a disservice when when, when we try and make when we soften the truth. You know, if if, if you're here today and Christ is not in your life, if you've never repented of your sin and invited Christ into your life, you are not in a safe place. Do you know that 50,000 people that are up and about today, by the time I stand up here next week, 50,000 people in this country will be gone. 20,000 of them will have had no idea that they were going to lose their life this week. That's, that's, those are really sobering statistics. And so we, we see that that the church is called to be a place where we exalt the holiness of God and where we see our unholiness in light of that. And, and in desperation, we become prepared then for the gospel. Jesus said, you know, the gospel is like a seed. And, but you throw it, if the soil's hard, the birds just pick it up. Or if it's too weedy, it, it doesn't grow. And so you can throw the, the seed. And many of you have been throwing the seed out during the week, and you find, but it doesn't take root. Why? Because the soil is not prepared. It is repentance that prepares the soil. It is a vision of god and 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 the resulting interior response within us where we we see our unholiness that prepares us then for the gospel. One final verse here, and I'm, we need to conclude <clears throat> first corinthians fourteen i was it just it just struck me the other day I was Paul here is talking about people that walk into a church and he's talking about the, the, the environment here if, if an unbeliever walks into a church and he, he's talking here in the context of speaking in tongues and he says, you know, if you're speaking in tongues people walk in, they're not, they're not going to know what you're saying. So Paul says, I'd rather that you prophesy and that word means to, to speak in, you know, that's like teaching so people can understand. So he's, he's exhorting the church here to prophesy, and listen for what happens. He says, but if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, or speaking the truth, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare so he will fall down and worship God, explaining, God is really among you. Wow, that's quite an atmosphere, isn't it? Where, where, where the and I think what he's saying here is that the, the holiness of God and, and our sinfulness you know in light of that is, is so powerful in that place that when people walk in and they're out of relationship with the God, they just fall down and say, "Wow, God is really here. I, I, I feel the weightiness of my sin. Well time is up this morning. <clears throat> So I'm going to invite you to bow with me. Father, I want to just pause here. I've been talking a lot and and just allow you to speak to us. Father, we've talked about a a fresh vision of beginning to pray as your church for a a full revelation of who you are, a, a greater understanding of your holiness. Just the magnificent God that you are, and so Father, we pray, and I pray today that we would seek you to experience a greater revelation of who you are. And Father, as we do that, we will find our hearts led into repentance. We will we will begin to be more convinced that we will have a change of mind about how we're living our life and how we need to live our life and how we, how we need to, to play out our lives on this sheet of ice that you put before us and that you've called us to, that you have called us to, to play out our lives in, in holiness. And So, Father, today, I just ask that you would speak to each one of us in just this moment of quiet. Lord, what are you trying to say? What are you you trying to say? Lord, the most important thing that any of us hears today is what you're trying to say to us. Father, might we be responsive to your voice to us in this moment and as we walk out from here and as we we make a decision not to suppress the truth about who you are or about who we are or about what you're calling us to do or what you might be calling us to change in our lives Father, might we choose to open ourselves up to trust you to do the work that you're wanting to do. Whether that mean to start at the very beginning and to acknowledge our sinfulness and and to invite Christ in to save us, or, Lord, for those that may have walked with you for 50 years, Lord, something in our lives that is unholy, Lord, we just give you uh, this day and the coming days to do your work in our lives. Father, we pray now as we conclude the service, Lord, just bless, uh, bless our gifts, bless this offering as we receive it, and we just do so in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand and conclusion of our service, you're invited back to Connection Cafe and also at 1130 for anyone interested in the library. Just take your coffee in there. I invite you to be a part of that. I just leave you with these words from Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ from the dead. Amen.